Our scripture reading for this Easter Sunday is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Hear now the reading of God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will also be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. And Father, now, as we gather together on this Easter Sunday, Father, would you speak to us in a way in which we could come away transformed and renewed, that this Easter would be different than previous ones before, that though some of us may be well familiar with the story, we ask that by your Spirit of God that dwells within, that we would come away renewed and reawakened to a deeper understanding of this story. And Lord, we also pray for those who are watching who have never heard this story before. Father, I pray that even though this may be a new story, may it stir in them, in their hearts, to where it feels like a very familiar story that they would hear at home. God, we pray that you would bless us today and that you would speak in spite of the one who brings the message. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hey, happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter. <laughs> you know, what an unusual way for me to say those words to you. You know, in all my years as a pastor, I never thought I would ever say those words to you guys via video instead of in person on a Sunday on what is arguably our most well-attended service of the whole year. Because it just doesn't seem appropriate. It just doesn't seem fitting at all. But then, the more I thought about it, the more I came to the opposite conclusion. No, it is very fitting that we're doing what we're doing right here right now the way that we're doing it. Why? Well, why aren't we gathered at St. John's right now? Because we're trying to stop the virus from spreading? Because we're trying to keep the hospitals from getting overwhelmed? Because we're trying to protect the most vulnerable in our society? Yes, of course. Yes to all those questions. But if you peeled back the layers behind those questions exposing the underlying reason behind them all, you would come to discover that what we're doing right now, how we're doing it, is so appropriate. It's so appropriate for me to say Happy Easter the way that I am right now. Why? Because the underlying reason as to why we are self-quarantining, as well as the underlying reason as to why Easter should make you happy, are one and the same. And that is the undermining of death. It goes without saying that some of us have more problems than others, whereas others of us have less problems than others. But regardless of who you are, there is one specific problem that is so massive, that is so ubiquitous, that is so overreaching, that it is a problem that every single person has to face, and that is the problem of death. It doesn't matter how young you are, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't even matter how healthy you are. The sad reality is, is that one day you will die. And not just you. Even those who you deeply cherish, people who you feel in your heart that if you lost them, you wouldn't even want to be able to keep living. Yes, they too will die as well, which means 
which means even if you and they survive this round of COVID-19, you're simply delaying what is inevitable. And that is you are going to be separated by them, from them, excuse me, either through your death or their own. Which means no amount of self-quarantining, no amount of social distancing, no amount of stopping the economy is going to keep that from happening. And so it seems so appropriate right now that we are saying Happy Easter the way that we are right now. Because maybe, just maybe, you'll pay better attention to what the message of Easter is all about. Now why do I say that? Well, as I hope to show you today, the message of Easter actually answers the question that has been circulating in all of our hearts as this virus has been circulating across the globe. And that question is, is there anything that we can turn to? Is there anyone that we can turn to that can solve this overwhelming problem known as death? Well, I believe there is. And if you're not a Christian today, I'd like to introduce him to you. And if you are a Christian I want to introduce him to you yet again. So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you from today's message, and they are the following. The ignorance of death, the unbearable pain of death, and finally, we're going to end it with the hope against death. The ignorance of death, the unbearable pain of death, and the hope against death. Let's begin with the first point, the ignorance of death. And to do so, let's read again verse 13 of our passage where the Apostle Paul writes these words, quote, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, I want to draw your attention to a word that Paul uses right in the middle of verse 13, the word uninformed. In the original Greek in which this letter is written in, it comes from the Greek word agoin. Agoin, we get our English word ignorance from it. Now, have you guys ever heard this phrase before? Ignorance is bliss? You guys heard that phrase before, right? Ignorance is bliss. It carries this idea that the less you know, the more happy you are. Well, Paul would tell us that is absolute nonsense because according to him, there is a kind of ignorance to where if you would experience it, if you suffer from this ignorance, you're not going to be blissful. No, you're going to be just the opposite. You're going to be despairing or as he puts it here, you are going to be grieving. In other words, there is a kind of ignorance to where if you go through it, you will feel so overwhelmed with such helplessness, so, so much despair, so much anxiety that you will not be able to get over it. And that is the ignorance surrounding death. Let me explain with this illustration. Imagine one day you wake up and the love of your life, whether it be your spouse, your children, or even a parent, is deathly ill. They start vomiting blood, they start losing weight rapidly, and they just can't control their body the way they should be able to control it. So in a state of panic, driven out of your love for this person, you take this person to the best doctors of the city. And every one of them tell you the same thing. We have no idea what's bothering this person. We have no idea what is wrong with them. And so you take this loved one of yours to the best doctors in the country. And they too say the same thing to you. We are completely ignorant as to what the problem is. And then in your last ditch effort, you take your loved one to the best doctors across the globe, all over the world, the best specialists, the best kinds of doctors that are out there. And they too say the same thing to you. We don't understand why this person is sick. We're completely ignorant. Now let me ask you, friend, would you be blissful in that state of ignorance? Of course not. Why? Because someone you deeply love, someone you deeply cherish is being taken away from you and you can't do anything about it. 
you are absolutely powerless because you're absolutely clueless. And so what do you do? You grieve. That, according to Paul, is the grief that is caused from the ignorance that comes from death. And here's where it gets worse. Look again at what Paul says in the middle of verse 13. Let me read it to you one more time. And that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see that phrase, as others? New Testament scholars tell us that this is Paul's shorthand way of referring to all of mankind, all of humanity, since its beginning. Now, by using such a comprehensive phrase... What is Paul strongly implying? Is he not strongly implying that this ignorance surrounding death that causes us to grieve is something that has been with mankind since the beginning? And because that is so, isn't he furthermore implying that this thing known as the problem of death has never found any solution? That is, no one has been able to properly diagnose death to where they could figure out a way to overcome it. This is something that Paul is clearly trying to say. No one has been able to correctly diagnose death to where there is any solution for mankind. And as a result, all of mankind, what? They grieve as those without hope. Now, of course, this is not to say that there haven't been attempts to try and figure out the solution to the problem of death, because clearly there were. If you ever study other religions, if you ever study philosophy, if you study classical literature, you'll be exposed to countless of many attempts of trying to solve this problem known as death. And if I had to categorize what all of these solutions were, they would fall into three basic categories, and they are as follows. First, there is the you'll get over it solution to the problem of death. Second, there is the you need to not care so much solution to the problem of death. And then finally, there's the you're so selfish solution to the problem of death. Those are the basic three categories that all attempted solutions to the problem of death fall into. So let's quickly go through them, beginning first with the you'll get over it solution to the problem of death. And this is something that has been around for thousands of years, and you find it most prominently in ancient Greek philosophy, specifically in the philosophic school known as Stoicism. And what the Stoics basically said is that, When you struggle with grief because of the death of the loved one, what you need to do is convince yourself and really believe in your heart of hearts that you will eventually get over it. The Stoics would basically try to train their students to think this way by saying, look, I know how hard it is, I know how painful it is that you've lost your loved ones, but you got to constantly convince yourself that this person's death, as tragic as it is, is not going to inhibit you from living the life you were meant to live. And so just believe it. And stop grieving. You know, in some ways, this solution kind of reminds me of a scenario where a father sees one of his young children fall to the ground, badly hurt. And the father desperately tries to convince the child, you're okay, you're okay, you're not hurt, get up, it's not that bad, you'll live, it's not that bad. You ever see that at a park somewhere? You know what the father is doing, right? He's trying to condition a child to a state of deniable thinking to where the child thinks he's not really hurt, when in fact he really is hurting, right? That's the hope. And that is the first attempted solution of trying to overcome the problem of death. It's pervasive. 
It's everywhere. You even see it in some of the popular songs in our culture. Just a few years ago, there was a country hit song called When I'm Gone that actually propagated this philosophical thinking. It was sung by a country duo artist named Joey and Rory. Take a listen to the lyrics so you can see how this idea is still being conveyed. It starts like this. A bright sunrise will contradict the heavy fault that weighs you down. In spite of all the funeral songs, the birds will make their joyful sounds. You wonder why the earth still moves. You wonder how you'll carry on. But you'll be okay on that first day when I'm gone. End quote. Hmm. That's the first attempted solution of dealing with the problem of death. You just convince yourself that you're going to be okay, that you'll be able to move on. Now let's go to the second attempt of solving the problem of death, and I call this the you not need to care so much. And this is kind of similar to the first solution because it also comes out of stoicism. And what this is basically saying is, is that when you go through grief because of the death of a loved one, what you need to do is to not care so much about the person who passed. You need to kind of distance yourself emotionally from this person to where you don't feel so attached so that when they're gone, you don't feel such overwhelming grief. Consider these words from Stoic philosopher Epictetus as he says this in his book on the Discourse. Quote, the principal and highest form of training and one that stands at the very entrance to happiness is that when you become attached to something, let it not be as something which cannot be taken away. When you kiss your child or your brother or your friend, never give way entirely to your affections, nor free reign to your imagination, but curb it, restrain it, and quote. In other words, don't care so much about the person that you lost in death. Otherwise, you're going to be overwhelmed with grief that's going to weigh you down and maybe even endanger your life. And you still see this concept being propagated in Eastern philosophy. You see it a lot in the teachings of Buddhism, which says that you need to just detach yourself right, by loving people less so that the grief you feel for them when they're gone will be less. So that's the second attempted solution to overcoming the problem of death. Now we come to the final attempted solution, the third which I call the You're So Selfish Solution. A few years ago, uh, the prominent atheist and biologist Richard Dawkins was doing an interview, and he once said these words as he was addressing the topic of our issue with death. Listen to what he says, quote, We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grands of Arabia. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. In the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I in our ordinariness that are here. We privileged few who won the lottery of birth against all odds, how dare we whine at the inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred, end quote. So basically what Dawkins is saying is, dude, stop whining. Stop complaining and being so selfish for the fact that you're going to die. Just be grateful for the fact that you even lived at all. Be grateful for the fact that you even had loved ones who could live to which you can enjoy. You know, this is kind of interesting. Dawkins tries to overcome the problem of death by saying there is no problem of death. No, the real problem is you're just an ungrateful, selfish person. So just stop it, right? 
Because in his mind, life is kind of like going to Disney World. Not everyone has an opportunity to experience it. So you should just be grateful and ignore whatever grief, whatever sorrow you have of death. In fact, you shouldn't even feel it all because if you do, you're selfish. So there you have it. The three apparent solutions that people have tried to come up with in dealing with the problem of death and the grief that comes out of that problem. But here, Paul is going to show us in just a moment how all of those attempted solutions are so insufficient. And the reason why is because they don't address the fundamental problem of death itself. And to explain what I mean by that, let me go to my next point, the unbearable pain of death. Read again with me verse 13 and verse 15 where it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, you may have noticed that Paul makes frequent mention of a group of people who, quote-unquote, have fallen asleep. And the question is, who are these people? Who are these people that Paul is referring to in this way? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to know a little bit about the background to what Paul is writing into. You see, Paul wrote this letter to the church in the city of Thessalonica, made up of people who were basically spiritual newbies. These were people who were very young in the faith to where they didn't know much about their Christianity, which also meant they didn't know what solution Christianity offered to the problem of death. And what we come to find as you read the letter is that many of these people have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom they're related to, many of them who are childhood friends who have died ahead of them. And so obviously in that state of mind, they feel compelled to ask Paul, Paul, is there anything that Christianity can offer to me to where I can overcome this sense of grief that stems from this problem of death, the ignorance of death. And Paul says that there is. But before we go into what he actually says, I want you to pay attention to how he say, says it based on what we just read in those verses that I just read to you. You'll notice his tone, right? He doesn't speak in a rebuking manner, implying that they're selfish to even feel this way or to even ask this question of Paul. He doesn't speak in a detached manner, as if to imply that these people were not that important and that, that, that they just need to like not care about these people so much. And he doesn't speak in a minimizing fashion either, as if to say, oh, just give it some time or just convince yourself that you'll get over it and you'll be all right. No, Paul does not speak in any way whatsoever. No, he speaks as someone who recognizes that there is something very appropriate, something very legitimate to be filled with grief. Because listen to what he says again in 13. He doesn't say, do not grieve. Rather, he says, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Paul knows very well that it is very appropriate, very significant for a person to grieve when they lose someone they love because death does rob us of something so valuable, so significant, something so important. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain by having us go skip down to verse 17 and read again with me what Paul says there. He says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, from this verse, Paul tells us that God never intended to simply have a relationship with us individually. No. 
Paul is saying here that God intended to have a relationship with us as part of a community, as part of a we. In other words, God doesn't simply just value you as an isolated individual. No, he values you as you being part of a network of relationships. Why is that? Because the Bible teaches us that when God created you, he created you to be a relational being. He created you to be someone who is connected to other people in love, to where you love them and they love you. Need I remind you of what God said to himself when he first created the first and only human being on the earth at the beginning of time, Genesis, right? Chapter 1. What did he say when he first created Adam? It is not good for Adam to be alone. And so what does God do? He creates Eve. The woman to whom Adam eventually marries and has many, many babies creating a massive community that creates more of a massive community. You see, one of the things that we need to understand is that part of what defines us as human beings, one of the crucial core characteristics of what makes us human is the fact that we are relational, that we are connected to one another, which means when these relationships are not there because they've been severed by death? Do you know what that means? It means we are not human, that we become less human. Consider these words from theologian Philip Hughes when he writes, quote, The creation of man as male and female, together with the encouragement to be fruitful and multiply, shows that man was intended to be a communal being enjoying personal fellowship with his fellow humans. Therefore, his segregation from human fellowship diminishes his human potential within the created order. End quote. When death segregates you from other people, specifically your loved ones, you become dehumanized. Do you know what it means to be dehumanized? It's where you're treated like garbage, where you're treated like filth, where you're treated like dung, where you're no good for nothing except to be thrown out or flushed down the toilet. That, Paul says, is what death does to you. It dehumanizes you because it takes away one of the very things that gives you your value as a human being. It takes away crucial and vital relationships. And as a result, death in many ways is a mockery, not only of you, but of the relationship that gave you so much value as a person. I mean, just go back to that country song I cited earlier. You guys remember that one line that just burns to the core? It goes like this. In spite of all the funeral song, the birds will make their joyful sounds. Do you hear the mockery in those words? Even though it's trying to convey something beautiful, in fact, it's conveying nothing but something hideous and ugly. It's saying that death has just made a mockery of you because it has minimized and it has devalued something that is inherently precious and so beautiful, something that gives you dignity as a human being. It has robbed you of relationships. See, this is why death is so painful because it treats your most precious relationships with your loved ones as something as utterly worthless and unimportant. And none of those three solutions that I referred to earlier in my first point can really address any of this. It doesn't undermine it. In fact, just the opposite. It validates it all. Because if you think about those three solutions that the world gives to us, they all assume the same thing about our relationships. That is, they are expendable. They are worthless. They are insignificant. And so... The question that we're left with is, is there an actual solution to the problem of death 
that can really address the grief that we're going to because it recognizes the dignity and value that we have in the relationships of those that we love. Paul says there is. And to explain, we go to the final point, the hope against death. Let's read verse 14 and verse 17 of our passage where Paul writes, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here Paul wants to encourage us with the hope that yes, indeed, there is a solution to the problem of death. And what is that solution? He tells us clearly in verse 13, excuse me, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. According to Paul, <clears throat> the solution to the problem of death was achieved 2,000 years ago when a obscure man from Bethlehem was crucified by the Romans. But then three days later, he rose again. He resurrected from the dead. And because he did this, that gives you and I hope against death. Why? Well, let me explain. The Bible teaches us that death was never part of God's design. God never intended for death to be the natural outcome to our earthly existence. God never intended for you and I to experience massive grief from losing our loved ones due to death. And so the question becomes, well, why is death happening then? Where does death come from? Why is it here? The answer is actually quite simple, but it's also quite sad. Death is here because we wanted it to be here. Or maybe a more better way to put it is, we wanted something that led to death as a consequence of that pursuit. And you know what that is? It's sin. It's sin. Consider these words from Pastor Matthew McCullough as he writes these words, Death is not the natural end to merely a biological life. Death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the Creator designed by that same Creator to make a point. Death is a punishment for human pride. It exposes our foolish confidence in our freedom to be whoever we want to be. Our foolish confidence in our freedom to be whoever we want to be? What is that? That's sin. Death has come upon the human race because deep within the heart of every human being is a desire to sin, a desire to speak to no other authority but our own, to where we get to define who we are, we get to tell ourselves that we will do whatever it is we want to do. And the consequences of that means our relationship with God gets severed, thereby leading into the creation of death that therefore results and the separation between us and our loved ones. That is so tragic. And yet this is where the Easter story is such good news. Because what the Easter message is fundamentally teaching us is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says even though God had every right to not only sever himself from you and therefore let you be severed from your loved ones, he instead decided to come into the world as Jesus Christ so that he could take on the full penalty, pay the full punishment that you and our loved ones deserves for all of our sins, so that if we turn away from our sins, and if we repent and make Jesus the master of our life, the king of our life, the creator that he really is, 
then not only do we have hope, but our loved ones have hope as well. That's what Paul is trying to remind them here in verse 16. Read it again with me. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Do you hear what Paul is telling the Thessalonians? He's telling them that they do not need to grieve. Why? Because those whom they love are also the ones who they share Christ with. And because they share Christ, this separation that they have right now because of death is a temporary separation. Just like our situation right now is a temporary separation, there is a day coming for all of us, Christian, that those whom we share Christ with will not be permanently severed from them, but only temporarily restrained. But when the day comes where we will be with Christ, we will be reunited again. Now, with that in mind, I want to address those of you who are watching this video because a Christian friend, co-worker, sibling, family member sent this to you. Do you know why they sent this to you? They sent this to you because they want to show you how much your relationship with them means. You know, in this day and age, I know the church and Christians don't have good rep, right? We portray ourselves in the media in such a way to where we just seem like a bunch of blind, irrational people who are easily brainwashed and therefore just give our money away. But I hope to show you that the reason why your loved one sent this message to you isn't because they're trying to brainwash you. They're not trying to convince you to give your money away. No. They want to offer you the only hope that is available in your relationship with them of having the kind of recognition of dignity and value it deserves by making sure it goes on forever, forever by you putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's when you, friend, put your faith in Christ that the relationship that you have with your loved one who is a Christian is able to have the recognition that God says it has. You see, God is so different from death. Death would say that our relationships are insignificant. Who cares? But God says no. Our relationships are precious to Him as well, and they are worth saving, which is why Jesus did what He did. When he died on the cross and he rose again. He not only salvaged our relationship with God. He salvaged our relationship with one another. So that by sharing Christ, we share our lives for eternity. Friend, I would hope that you would seriously come to understand that point, And that you would come to understand how amazing this God is. And how much he loves you. And how much he recognizes how important your relationships are with your loved ones. Would you consider making Jesus the Lord and King of your life? All you need to do is turn away from your sin and make Jesus the Lord of your life as he truly is. Now I want to end my message by addressing those of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians. Specifically those of you who have lost loved ones either recently or even years ago. And yet the grief still lingers. I want to encourage you that though you grieve, Make sure you grieve as someone with hope because the Christ that you have with your loved one who went ahead of you in death, you are going to be reunited with them. That is the hope of what the gospel teaches and that is why Jesus rose again. So that not only could we have our relationship with God restored, but so that the relationship that you lost will be returned to you. That is what I want to remind you of and encourage you with. In fact, 
let me read to you a small snippet of a letter from a pastor that I like to read who lived many, many years ago, a man by the name of Samuel Rutherford. This is a snippet of a letter that he wrote to a woman in his congregation who lost her mother to death. Listen to how he puts it, because I can think of no better way of ending this message than with his pastoral words that you can carry with you after today. Take a listen to what he says. Quote, But what? Do you think her lost when she is but sleeping in the bosom of the Almighty? Think her not absent who is in such a friend's house. Is she lost to you who is found to Christ? If she were with a dear friend, although you should never see her again, your care for her would be but small. Oh, now is she not with a dear friend? And gone higher upon a certain hope that ye shall in the resurrection see her again? When be ye sure she shall neither be hectic nor consumed in body? But ye have to rejoice that when a part of you is on earth, a great part of you is glorified in heaven. Therefore, run your race with patience. Let God have his own and ask of him instead of your mother, which he hath taken from you, the mother of faith, which is patience. And in patience possess your soul. Lift up your head. Ye do not know how near your redemption doth draw. Thus recommending you to the Lord, who is able to establish you, I rest your loving and affectionate friend in the Lord Jesus. End quote. Brother, sister, remember this. Your loved one is with a dear friend. And the time is coming where this separation that you have with them will be no more. May you be reminded that this Easter Sunday and every day from this forward on. Amen and amen. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can still hear your word even though we are required to be separated from one another physically. We can be together in spirit and be surrounded by the truth of the word that is made available through the preaching of the word. And Father, I thank you so much uh, for this message that you have given to us on this Easter Sunday, especially now when the reality of death is much more palatable than it has before. No longer as an abstraction, no longer as this ethereal thing, but now something very clear, very present, and very dangerous. But Lord, I pray in the midst of all of that, we would not be overwhelmed with despair or grief, but instead, hope. Father, I pray for those who are watching this message who don't know you. I ask that they would come to know you and that they would come to see that you are so good because not only do you offer us yourself, but you offer us our loved ones who are so precious to us. I pray that they would heed this message and not only have a restored relationship with you, but have a permanent restored relationship with their loved ones here on earth through faith in Jesus. And finally, Lord, I pray for our saints who are grieving because of the death of a loved one. Oh God, would you minister to them and may this Easter message encourage them to remember that the day is coming where they'll be separated no more. Hear us now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.